doing good i'm doing good we had the crisp feeling of autumn did you yeah yeah a chill in the morning or something like that yeah just briefly just briefly considering it was 116 degrees fahrenheit it dipped down to what like 99 or something like that <laughs> you know it went down to 110 and it was the crisp feeling <laughs> of autumn well, we we Alaskans, we Ketchikaners have been uh, enjoying kind of a week of sunshine, man. So uh, summer came to us late, and uh, yesterday I went driving around on the island with some oh, friends. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, last yeah. year you drove me to where the road ended, and then you That's went right. you went another ten miles past that, right? I went like thirty miles past that, man. Well, I looked on Google Earth, and you went past what's that big, huge inlet called where there's that that vertical tide or horizontal tides well there's george inlet right and then there's carol inlet and then right. there's thorn arm so we have three big fjords if you will right but what's that uh, lake that's fed by that horizontal tidal tidal rush which is uh the very end of george inlet oh oh, oh, oh yeah uh, it's uh what are they, they call it the salt lagoon the salt chuck oh right right the salt chuck the george inlet salt chuck yeah. Right. So yeah, it narrows down. There's a the standing tide in there. You can go in. The tide variation up here is like you know 26 feet. So some of these narrow wow. inlets have these standing waves, and boats get lost, get sucked in, sucked out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, we went for a drive. It was kind of cool, but you know, it's it's cool because we're able to drive to some places and see some beautiful things. But well, people don't realize Ketchikan is an island with one road that if you were to start at one end, which is kind of southeast of town and drive to the north part of town, it's 30 minutes. Yes. And then it it's actually... they both dead end. They dead end and you like go, okay, what's on the other side? Trails, waterfalls and bears. My wife and I measured it the other day. We went from one end to the other end, uh, that, that north to south, and it is 31.8 miles of road oh. that I've been traveling on all these 37 years. And then yesterday, we added another like 30, 40 miles of road. Wow. So it was cool seeing it. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the kind of downside is that these are logging roads. So it's the beautiful oh. Tongass you're seeing. But... You're seeing a lot of second growth. Oh, you're seeing you clear know, cut, clear cuts, and that kind of thing. So, but you know, so describe it though. It's 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 kind of muskeg and some of the low fl flat areas, and there are mossy glens with old growth trees. Then there's great swaths of cut cut timber with second growth yeah. from like 20 years ago. Yeah, and the second growth is very dense. It's very different than the old not growth. Not very tall, you know? though. Not very tall. Well, actually, it can get pretty tall, but the trees are very narrow, and, and the woods are dark. There's a, it's, The canopy closes in, or there'll be a lot of alder trees, which are the first trees yeah. to come back. So, like I said, there's, there's one of the upsides of logging, if you will, is that you get these roads, and but that's a downside too. So <laughs> there know. it is. I'm always well. You know, I don't I, know, man. It's life. I so. did. I did have to write a a card to a friend for birthday, and it was on a piece of tree. So right, logging tree. Your takeout. You know, in this great coronavirus. Um, 
I went to a restaurant yesterday and oh. everything is served on paper bowls, paper cups, paper this, paper that. So yeah, it's a, a devil we have to have, isn't it? There's, we're all learning, we're all adapting, <laughs> we're trying to do what we can. We're still doing plastic up here though, man. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, yeah. That just kills me how much plastic I, single use plastic I go through just in a day of preparing meals. You're opening plastic to get bread out. You're opening plastic to unwrap that frozen this or whatever. It's just absolutely insane. And you know, the great call, the great call that we have too much plastics is out there, but nothing's being done. There's been no change. Well, you know, we had a young scientist friend over here. She's a kelpologist, if you will. Her specialty Kelp. was marine a kelpologist. And she was, Kelp, I need somebody. Sorry, anyways. Uh, Tiff, she's a neighbor, and she was telling me that they're, she's working on their harvesting kelp and farming kelp here in Southeast, but they're also working on biodegradable, basically plastic, if you will, that's made out of kelp. Okay, so, yeah. You know, there's experiments like that going on. No, I, I do get it. No, the scientific community uh, will, fix, will fix everything, I believe, in the future. However, I'm just saying that I walk around my life and I shop at Vons, which is like your Safeway, it's the same company, and I bring home two bags every week and everything is in plastic. Everything's wrapped in plastic. The jars are plastic. The lids are plastic. And But you guys don't have plastic bags anymore, right? Yeah, well, yes. Yes. If yeah. you if you like 80% of the customers forget to bring your reusable grocery bags, which so many people are lazy and don't have, they give you plastic bags, but they're reusable. So they're just a little thicker right so what they've done is they've replaced those thin plastic bags with thicker plastic bags <laughs> that probably take longer to degrade right and so it's not the idea that we've outlawed plastic bags it's the idea that no one's changed their habits of keeping reusable bags in the trunk of your car and using them every time you go to the store Round and round and round we go. Oh, Where man. it stops, who hey. knows? Hey, 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 but you know, Dave, have you ever looked out at the ocean and seen a whale spouting and wondered, how did that whale get out there? How did whales come to be? Well, wait, whale's a mammal, yeah, wait, right? hold on, hold on. I just yeah. switched topics on you there, okay. dude. But, uh, well, the whale. Yeah, catch up with me, dude. The whale swam out there, so don't even give me that. Ah, but once upon a time, they did not swim out there. Yeah. They walked on out there, man. Yeah. Well, let's get into that today, huh? Shall we? <laughs> you don't want to harp about how we're killing our planet? I uh, just thought I'd get off. You know, we're, this is a weird yeah. Yeah, podcast. I, mean, I hear we're paleo, you. And so uh, I know you're down along the coast. I'm up here in the coast. I've been lucky enough, actually, this summer, because there's been no cruise ships, to look out my window. I've seen killer whales from my window going down the channel. And I have seen humpback Wait, whales. Wait, don't you mean orcas? You don't mean killer whales. You mean orcas. Well, orcas. Yeah, killer whales, man. They're you mean orcas. killer whales. Yeah, yeah. Same I thought thing. we don't call them killer whales anymore because that, like, ah. is a stupid 18th century moniker. No, man, I don't think it is. Killer whales—they call them killer whales for a reason, man, because they—they—they they, they, when they—they they are the kings of the sea. Yeah. Wow. You know, their brains are bigger Massive. than ours, man. Yeah. Bigger than ours. And hey, actually, speaking of killer whales too, that we had a an albino 
wow. killer whale, or actually it's a white killer whale. I don't think it's a true albino, but uh, spotted here in Southeast Alaska. I'm hoping that maybe it'll come down Ketchikan way. And what would that be from? Would that would be a genetic, you know? I think it's one of those genetic flukes, man. But uh, the weird thing about, you know, killer whales and whales is uh, they were once land creatures like 55 million years ago on land walking around and they weren't whales. They were, they look like, what do they look like? Kind of like wolf-like things? Well, a very long-faced, weird-looking, wolfy sort of thing. And I'm very impressed, David, that you know that it's 55 million years ago-ish, back in the Eocene, maybe into the Paleocene, man. You've been studying up. Well, do you know why? There's a skeleton of an ambulocetus at the LA County Museum of natural history. It has four legs and it has this huge long snouty jaw with these massive teeth. I mean, these these are predator teeth. And I went, whoa, this is the precursor. This is the progenitor of, wait. <laughs> the precursor, the precursor. This is the that? precursor of a whale, of like a blue whale that that is 70 feet long or a gray whale or, or my God, it's absolutely insane. Yeah, it sort of looks like a, a dog with a, a, a crocodile head, you yeah. know, stuck on it. And I love the name Ambulocetus. Ambulo is in meaning like, you know, walking, meaning walking, it, it cetus, walking whale. And oh, right. uh, it was discovered in Pakistan, I believe. Oh, isn't there like a Pakilocetus too? There's a Pakacetus, yes. Pakacetus. And was that discovered in Pakistan? Is that why it's a Pakacetus? In that area? Yeah, Pakacetus. You got it, man. Oh, like, oh yeah. <laughs> but here's what blows me away. Our guest today is going to enlighten one of these questions that I have, and maybe you can answer before we talk to him. Yeah. What blows me away is you have a creature that's a whale with, it's not a whale. It has four legs and fur and a big snout. And it probably lived in a river. And you see that it has kind of swimming-like paw pads, but it still is definitely a four-legged beast. Mm -hmm. Then in your mind's eye, think of a blue whale, right? Think of this huge, massive creature that's 60 feet long. It has no legs. 100 feet, man. 100 feet long. It has no legs. It has fins. It has a big, huge tail. And it's smooth, right? It might have little eyebrow hairs, right? Don't, Don't whales have little eyebrow hairs? I, I maybe they do. I, I don't. Think they I don't retain, know. I think they retain mammalian hairs around their eyes. Too, yeah. yeah, they can wake. And so, to go from that animal to such a different body plan, so completely foreign to what it was, I don't get how it changes yeah. through time. I mean, does People... does, a, does a mother does a mother ambulocetus with four legs? wake up one day and has a litter of pups and and one of them has one just, of them has a tail has, <laughs> no <laughs> whoops well we better eat that one <laughs> no um no it has like a bit of a more webbing between than the other brothers and sister pups i mean this this has to evolve so slowly that if you were to go every month and, and look at each generation of these creatures you wouldn't see any change but would you see a change after if you went back every year? Or would you see a change if you went back every hundred years or every thousand years? Where do you see that little tiny change? Is it 
is it 200 generations or 2 million generations? That's the kind of thing you know, that I don't, ha I can't get my head around this evolutionary change, which is so drastic and, and, and so different when you look at. Well, you know, Mr. Darwin was one of the first people to realize as he went to the Galapagos Islands and he went from island to island, there are these birds that look pretty no, darn dude, similar. Dude, he saw finches. But one beak yeah, was but different dude, than yeah, the I know. other thing. No, 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 Come no. On, Those man, finches. Yeah. yeah, but the finch with the Darwin finches, you have a short beak, and then one bird goes to the other island, and he has a little nectar with a long flower. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the nectar is way down in the flower, so that bird's beak evolves. That's that's kind of a tiny yeah, evolutionary change. It's tiny. No, I'm talking about a four-legged creature and then a blue <laughs> whale. No, no, that is so, so different. The it's change is radical. so massive. It is pretty, it is very radical, but you know, when you actually see those steps and uh, there are, we could talk to our guest today about how this transition happens. Okay, and I wanna ask that question. I, I am stunned at how quickly whales took to the water, the, the whale, the hippo-like creatures that they were related to. Hippopotamus is the closest well, land Well, there had to have been food them. source. Well, we'll ask him. There had to have been yeah, food yeah. source. Yeah, we'll now, get to the our, bottom of this. Our guest today is Bobby Bosenecker, and you That's met right. him when? I met him back in 2011 and I was reading his blog. He's been running this blog for a decade or more called The Coastal Paleontologist. And he grew up in the uh, San Francisco area, just going to the beaches. And we'll find out a little bit more about his background and how he became a fossil nerd. And uh, I was working on the book with Kirk Johnson, you know, the director of the Smithsonian. Oh, which I've book, done a couple of books. Which book was that? We were working on Cruising the Fossil Coastline. Okay, and so and you interviewed him for what? Marine? He's a, he's a marine, marine mammal mammals. guy. Marine mammals. Ah, so he's... And we went to his house. Walruses. Yeah. Did he have a walrus in his house? <laughs> oh, I could just... Yeah, actually, we walked up to his house. <laughs> Out in front, there was a big concretion with a walrus skull in it. Whoa. An ancient walrus or... Yes. All yes. oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I was stunned to find out that... There aren't just walruses in the Arctic. There were lots of walruses all up and down the coast, many species, varieties. And like this younger guy, Bobby, was like in his 20s and he's rattling off all these names. And he is really, I would say, the world's one of the world's foremost experts wow. on right. marine mammal evolution. He's amazing. Well, let's call him. You got me excited because I yeah. want to find out about this whole evolutionary transitional creature from uh, a four-legged to a blue whale and find that out. Yes. So, Ray, who's this guest that shares the same birthday as me? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. Same birthday, man. Meet paleontologist and adjunct professor at the College of Charleston and the Mace Brown Museum of Natural History in Charleston, South Carolina, Bobby Bosenecker. Hey, Bobby. Howdy, y'all. Thanks for having me on. Oh, pleasure. And uh, isn't it weird? Did you as a kid think that because our birthdays are so close to Labor Day, did you think the flags were put out for you? <laughs> I never I never put much thought to that. Usually I associated my birthday with back to school and yeah. so I never truly enjoyed it. Yeah, you know what? I, I was the same way. It was like, because you go to school, nobody knows you, and you can't go around saying, hey, it's my birthday, because you don't know anybody yet. It was very awkward, wasn't it? <laughs> there, was, there was that, but also I, I hated school growing up, so I had this like horrible depression every year in August. We'd leave Lake Tahoe at like the first week of August, and I was like, oh, well, three weeks until classes start, and then now I teach in the fall. The, the tables have turned, 
and so I keep on having the same anxiety. And it's even worse this year with, you know, with the COVID. coronavirus. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Bobby. So that actually leads me into the, uh, you are a paleo nerd, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. How did you become a paleo nerd? Uh, so I grew up reading uh, books on dinosaurs and stuff like that. And unfortunately, I didn't really know um, until I was well into high school that there were all sorts of fossils on the California coast. I, I sort of grew up without having much access to any books or, or documentaries about local fossils. And so I was under the false assumption that you had to go to places like Montana to uh, find really cool fossils. And ironically, after I started collecting fossils on the California coast, largely in Half Moon Bay and the Monterey Bay, so like Santa Cruz vicinity, where I've taken you out before, I think. Right. Um, so you grew up in south of San Francisco? South of San Francisco, on the peninsula there, uh, a little town called Foster City on the side of the uh, yeah. San Francisco Bay. Yeah, um, I know it. Built on Bay Phil, so of course it's sinking about an inch every year, or part of the city anyway. Now, while I learned in high school that you didn't have to go to Montana to find great fossils, I did learn that you do kind of have to go to places like that to get an undergraduate program in paleontology. So I started school in 2003 at Montana State, um, met my lovely wife, Sarah, there, who is now my co-worker yeah. at the museum. Yeah. And co-author. And co-author, yes. Uh, she just completed her master's degree through the University of Leicester on museum studies. Okay. So I like to call her my mistress of science now. Uh, <laughs> ironically, I went to Montana where everybody else was interested in dinosaur fossils, and I started researching fossil marine mammals and sharks and seabirds and things like that that I collected on the California coast, largely because I wanted to correct this whole uh, ridiculous notion that there aren't any cool fossils in Northern California. That's how I met you, Bobby, was that you started doing this wonderful blog, The Coastal Paleontologist. And when I was Googling up, oh, my God, I've got to go on this trip with Kirk Johnson, and we're going to be fossiling on the West Coast. What are we going to find? I started Googling, and I found your wonderful blog spot, and I introduced Kirk to your work. We cold called you, and right yep. that day, we showed up at your house, your parents' house, actually the house you grew up yep. in, in 2011. So you're just fresh out of grad school? Just about a month or so. Yeah, and as we walked up to the house, there was concretion on the front, <laughs> and there was a walrus skull, and my mind was blown, like this walrus skull is from here. What deposits in Northern California, and what age were you finding cool Fossils. The specific trip that actually prompted me to go into marine mammal paleontology, we went to this rock unit called the Santa Margarita Sandstone, which is exposed throughout uh, central and southern California, and a little sliver of it comes up into the Santa Cruz Mountains. And in the in central California, you can find all sorts of sand dollars and scallops and desmostylian teeth, Ray's favorite uh, marine mammal fossils. Desmostylians. Oh, yes. But in the Santa Cruz Mountains, it's very gravelly. And so you go up there and you can stick out all this gravel with a shovel, put it into a screen, and pull out tons and tons of shark teeth. On average, maybe 10 decent shark teeth over a half inch long in about an hour. That sounds like the Calvert Cliffs out of Maryland. Calvert Cliffs. Is this is this Miocene? So it's, it's upper Miocene. So it's about 10, eh, like 9 to 12 million years old. So it's a little bit younger than the Calvert Formation, and most of the collecting at Calvert Cliffs, there are, you don't go and screen there. You go and look through uh, teeth that have weathered out of the cliffs that accumulate on the beach. 
in California, you can't really find teeth loose on a beach, which is probably why not a whole lot of people know about where to find teeth. So you got to go and find these really specific stratigraphic intervals where the teeth are very um, concentrated. So this locality near Scotts Valley, actually right very close to what just burned in the Santa Cruz Mountains uh, about a month ago, you go and dig through this gravel, and every once in a while you'll also pull out marine mammal teeth and occasional these weird little things that look like popcorn with little bulges and holes in them. They're dolphin ear bones in order to hear underwater and echolocate. Yeah, well, let me jump in here. You were about to tell us about this pivotal moment digging shark teeth and you yeah, found you these little bits. So I want to know, take me back to that. All right. This is probably about 2001 or so. And I, I finally find out where this fossil site is. And I asked my dad, I didn't have a, a learner's permit yet, to drive me down to the Santa Cruz Mountains for an afternoon. And so he, he sat out in the car reading some history documents. <laughs> and I went up and... and you know, for fun, as a teenager, started digging a giant hole in the hillside. Well, there were a bunch of other collectors out there. People were pulling out all these shark teeth. They um, knew the genus and species names off all of these. People, I found a couple of fragments of megalodon teeth. And with the shark teeth, everybody kind of knew what they were. But a few weird mammal specimens came up. One of them was a dolphin ear bone. And the other, which I remember really well, was a sea cow molar. And the problem is, I asked, well, what's the species? And they're like, uh, I don't know. And I thought, well, that's weird. Uh, why do we know so much more about the sharks than we do about the marine mammals? So I kept on going back and started reading re and reading more and more and more. And by the time I was a sophomore in college, I had finally kind of gotten the answer uh, to the question, why don't we know as much? And it's literally because very little research is up until that time and still kind of up until now has been done on marine mammal paleontology on the West Coast. Wow. The other half of the answer is that okay. the few paleontologists who had done research up until that time had done an extremely poor job of communicating it to the public. Right, outreach. Which is partly why I went off and wrote that blog you like so much. Right, I love that blog. And, and did you take Kirk and I to that spot where you found this sea cow teeth? Uh, we went to a similar spot, the spot where you guys, made, we didn't find any fossils, so you made me pose with a bunch of garbage that people had left. <laughs> yeah, I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have that picture. But but well, then, amazingly, we went to Capitola. We went down to the beach of Capitola, and I was stunned as we walked down that beach because there were whale skulls, there were vertebrae. What? And I was taught I was stopping people. Wait a said, minute. Wait, Look at this. Uh, there's whale skulls lying on a beach. They are there and people just walk right over them. Bobby said, check it out. Well we don't want people going down and dragging those things off, but there they were. You're talking okay, massive, massive ancient whale? Are we talking uh, how old? Uh, so those whales are all about like 3.9 to 4.9 million years in age based on paleomagnetism. And they all come from a single 8 to 12 inch thick bed of extremely hard uh, sandstone. Some of, the, some of the skulls are probably up to about 7 or 8 feet in length. Uh, in some cases, you'll find articulated strings of vertebrae. The size of the concretions, they're usually about two meters across. Yeah. So they weigh tons. Yes. And they are extremely difficult to get off the beach. They're about an eighth of a mile from the nearest road. Right. Uh, and the beach is only accessible by for heavy machinery at lowest low tide. And then maybe only an hour. So getting them off the beach would be extremely difficult. And two, the extreme size and hardness of the concretions make cleaning them up 
not a very easy or, or monumental task. What was the reason that these skulls are there? What what was the deposition? Was it a mass die off, or is it a special type of ocean shore that is conducive to preservation? So. I wrote a fair amount of my master's thesis on this bone bed. Mm. The short answer is probably not much evidence of a mass die-off. The weird thing is that it is the 12 to 8 inch thick bed has three erosional surfaces within it that are mantled with little phosphate nodules indicating there was a long period of time in between each erosional event. And then the surfaces themselves are also bored by folad clams. The I, I hate to make the joke, but boring clams <laughs> that bore into rock. So there's a lot of time locked up in the single bed, about a million years. There seems to be a, a ton of whale skulls just in a single bed, far more than any other uh, horizon within this rock mm. unit, which is called the Parisima Formation um, mm. in the Santa Cruz area. So it's a bit of a puzzle. Usually when you see a bone bed, it means that a bit of erosion has happened in concentrated fossils and reworked them together it's sort of a lag deposit. All the heavier fossils are left behind as a lag, and the smaller fossils are transported somewhere else on the continental shelf. As to where on the continental shelf, probably deposited about 20 to 40 meters water depth. That's, that's a question I never felt fully satisfied with my answer with my master's thesis, and you could do an entire paper on it. How could you determine it's 100 feet from a dry layer of sediment? How, how, do, you, is it, how, how do you determine that? Oh, let me guess, through the flora and fauna you find within there? Uh, so that's a hint, but I actually relied upon how much burrowing there was, how much burrowing and what the uh, sedimentology was telling me. So the sedimentology was telling me that it's likely deposited in what we call the transition zone, which is the middle shelf, close to the maximum depth at which storm, storm weather waves can disturb the seafloor, which is about 40 meters or so. There is some evidence of uh, some inner shelf clams and snails, which suggests it's on the upper side of that. So above storm weather wave base, but probably below fair weather wave base, which is closer to like 15 to 20 meters depth. Cool. When you say burrowing, do you mean the boring clams and how much they were drilling in or what? Uh, so if you look at the rocks below telling us what the shelf was like just before the bone bed began to be deposited, um, those we had regular inner shelf clams like Macomas and um, Anadara, which is a, an art clam that typically live under 50 meters. Okay. Hey, do any of these uh, do any of these skulls or bones have evidence of predation by you know who <laughs> or anything? Megalodon. <laughs> Megalodon. So these. These do not. By the way, Ray owns one of the largest largest megalodon teeth on the planet. I'm humble. I don't brag about it very much, Dave, but <laughs> I'm a very humble man. But do any of those show little bite marks or big bite marks? These do not, for for a couple possible reasons. Um, one, basically none of them have been prepared out because they're so big and so onerous to prepare. Right. There are other cetacean skulls from that locality uh, that are like you know from a couple meters down below that bone bed that have shark tooth bite marks on them, but from much smaller sharks. So they are there. Yeah. There's also not really any megalodon teeth 
in that part of the Prisma, which is what actually the observation that led me to publish that paper last year on the extinction of Megalodon. Right. Now you have, you were on Discovery Channel's Shark Week. Yeah, I know you were like marine mammals are your thing, but what was this insight that you had with the extinction? Why did Megalodon go away? And why'd you get all that news buzz last year? What, what was it about? So I remember during my master's program, uh, it, it really all started out, I wanted to find a really young Megalodon tooth. And I wanted to find one from this rock unit, the Parisima Formation, which I've been obsessed with for my entire adult life. And wait, uh, young, young meaning geologically uh, young, geologically young, not a baby man. No, no. <laughs> I I actually found a little tiny, maybe like one inch long tooth of a newborn megalodon when I was in high school at that spot that I was talking about earlier in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So I already had a life history young megalodon tooth. You were looking for like the last of the megalodons, right? The last. I was interested in the geologically last occurring megalodons and, right. and when when you could date that. So I've been doing all this field work at places like Capitola that are high up in the Parisma. So in the Pliocene part, you know, Pliocene's 5.3 to 2.6 million now. Right. Um, yep. And I had found plenty of great white shark teeth, basking shark teeth. Basking shark, gill rakers, ray teeth, all of the sort of usual suspects, but not any megalodon teeth. And so I, I spoke with uh, my colleague, Frank Perry, who's a, a paleontologist at the Santa Cruz Museum. And he basically said, I've been looking since the late 60s and haven't seen any. You're not going to find it. But I can tell you where to find them, where the only layer that's ever produced any specimens. And sometime in the mid to early 90s, this local collector had found a single tooth at the very base of the Parisima Formation. Frank said, you should look there. So I started looking, and it only took me about two years of searching until I found, literally on Black Friday, which, by the way, if you live in an urban area with great fossil sites, is the best way to beat the crowds and get away from all that commercialist stuff. <laughs> Go out and find some fossils, do some science. Nobody else is out there. Even if the weather's terrible, it's all... Actually, that's good for the coast because it means the cliffs are all washed off and nicely eroded, and that's how I found this tooth. About a half inch of the cliff had been eroded that fall. This is fall 2007. I see three inches of the serrated blade of a megalodon tooth sticking out of the base of the cliff. I started hopping in excitement, and <laughs> the rock's yeah. pretty hard, so it took me about 45 minutes to chisel out. And I was really, really hoping it wasn't what people on the East Coast call a heartbreaker, which is where... You only see like a little bit of the tooth and then you pull it out. And it's just that part of the tooth. There's no rest of the tooth yeah. behind it. It was not a heartbreaker. A little bit of the root was missing, but it was basically the entire crown of a very, very large adult megalodon. It would have been close to a maximum size. So we're talking a shark, depending upon whose body size calculation you use, somewhere in the 13 to 15 meter range or bigger. So you're talking about a six feet. a six inch tooth? About a six inch tooth. Mine was about five and a half inches because the root was broken. The other cool thing about it, and this is entirely, you know, me humble bragging as a collector, it's this humble beautiful, brag. incredible color. It's like green and blue, which is I've never seen that color in Megalodon teeth anywhere here on the East Coast. Anyway, I put that specimen in a museum. The collector who found the one in the nineties refused to donate his, so I got to publish the paper on it. Um, and I published a short article in, in 2016 about it, and I followed it up with this paper where we asked, why are megalodon teeth only in the, bo uh, the base of the Parisima? We started looking elsewhere in California. We pooled every single 
Megalodon bearing locality on the West Coast together and evaluated the stratigraphic age control for the youngest occurrences of Megalodon and basically found none of them are any younger than the early Pliocene. So the youngest teeth seem to date to the uh, early to late Pliocene boundary at 3.6 million. And then okay. we had to look globally. So we did a uh, we took a data set that was published a few years ago, added a lot more data points to it. We did a lot of um, housekeeping on the data set. Some of the some of the dates uh, were incorrect or incorrectly interpreted or the original paleontologist made some mistakes. So we cleaned up that data set, got rid of a few really bad occurrences that had poor provenance. So there's no demonstrable proof from the original paper, like back in the 30s or the 40s, that the fossil was actually collected from a particular well-dated bed or not. And when we re-ran the analysis, we ended up pushing the extinction date of Megalodon back by a full 1 million years. To where? Uh, originally, the extinction date was estimated to be about 2.5 million years, and we pushed it back to a minimum of 3.6 million. Okay. And also, the other thing that happened, the window of uncertainty was originally 4 million years long, and with our better data set, we shifted that to an 800,000-year-long window of uncertainty. So we're pretty damn certain that Megalodon went extinct between 4 million and 3.2 million with a most likely extinction date of about 3.6. So what happens at that 3.6? What's the big change you see? So this is the, the part that brings it back sort of to marine mammals. I've been interested in this hidden extinction of marine mammals about somewhere between 1 and 2.5 million years ago. There's a big huh. shift in marine mammal faunas uh, across the transition from the warm Pliocene to the cold, icy Pleistocene. So on the West Coast, we've got giant sea cows related to the extinct stellar sea cow from the Aleutians, uh, even bigger sea cows than Stellar saw in the 1740s. Right. Um, we've got uh, toothless walruses, Balanictus, um, all sorts wait, wait, of what weird do you mean? porpoises. What do you mean toothless? What do you mean toothless walrus? They have tusks, but those are the only teeth they have left. They've what? lost all the cheek teeth. No molars. There's so many varieties of walruses that flourished at the Pacific Coast. Bobby knows more about those, but stick with the shark right now. All these marine mammals disappear and the extinction of Megalodon used to be correlated with that extinction. Oh, this, okay. this extinction that killed off all these wacky marine mammals on the west coast also killed off Megalodon. They had no food. Because what? Because that was their food? Uh, yeah. The hypothesis was shallow water coastal marine vertebrates were hit the hardest by this hidden extinction some two million years ago. Megalodon was interpreted as being a shallow water shark, so therefore likely whatever caused the extinction, Megalodon suffered uh, this for the same reasons as a lot of these marine mammals. So there's not necessarily a causation implied between all its food disappearing. We still have marine mammals. We don't know if they disappeared in terms of numbers. The fauna changed drastically, but there's very poor fossil records during the early parts of the Ice Age. So we don't we don't know a lot about how this happened or why. When was the first glaciation in the Pleistocene? Um, the first glacial interglacial cycles and the first real northern hemisphere. Is that 2.6 million years ago with the start of it? About about two to two and a half million years ago is when it started getting cold. Right. And then about 700,000 when we started getting into the very, very warm interglacials and the very, very cold interglacials. Right. So you're saying the, the megalodons got extinct 3.6 million years ago. 
when the marine mammals, well, they started losing their numbers a million years ahead. So the, the big point of our paper was that the extinction of Megalodon actually yeah. precedes this marine mammal extinction by at least a million years, and therefore yes. is not related. And for an example, right. the extremely diverse fossil assemblage from the San Diego Formation in Southern California, which has those weird walruses, weird porpoises, oh, yeah. giant sea cow, dwarf baleen whales, there's no, they have all those. And those marine mammals are the same ones we have in the early Pliocene, but there's no Megalodon anymore. So the marine mammal fauna on the West Coast sailed past the extinction of Megalodon. Nobody seemed to notice. And so your theory was that you see a great expansion of great white sharks at about the same point, and that's the outcompete Megalodon? Is that what happens? That's, that's our hypothesis at present. So, And that's based upon an analysis done looked at latitudinal changes in the geography of the megalodon fossil record and basically concluded that there's no correlation with you know latitudinal expansion or contraction with climate so megalodon's extinction and geographic distribution has nothing to do with physical factors and likely had something to do with a biotic factor and the only real thing we could point out that happened in the mid pliocene is that right around three to four million years ago is when the modern great white shark becomes worldwide in distribution. So great whites evolved from extinct broad-toothed makos during the late Miocene as early as seven million years ago, in, uh, judging from the fossil record in Chile, Peru, and California. But it doesn't end up in the Atlantic or the Mediterranean until about 4 million. That gives us about a half million years of overlap in the North Atlantic. And so by that point, perhaps it's competing with Megalodon throughout its range, which maybe there's some growth-related competition. Well, great whites today eat seals and penguins. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like their main food source. So what would a Megalodon have eaten? Whales? I mean, the, the classic cartoon is that it eats whales. Right, and we do have... Uh, fossil baleen whales with megalodon tooth marks, which could be predation or scavenging. There is a paper by uh, some Italian colleagues of mine where they, I think Italian and Peruvian, where they propose based upon the distribution of tooth marks on fossils from Peru, that megalodon, despite its gigantic size, may have actually targeted small prey. And therefore, well, it's easier. Yeah. Easy munching, bite-sized snacks. So anyways, the Discovery Channel takes you down, and the headlines that were generated were, you know, great white sharks cause megalodon to go extinct, and there's sort of, the, you almost imagine these battles between great white sharks ganging up on the megalodons. But, you know, Discovery Channel also uh, ran a special a couple of years ago during Shark Week, kind of wondering if megalodon was still alive. No, so they, they don't, don't even go there. Ray. They, they corrected that sense, Ray, right? Ray, yeah, they corrected it. Don't, don't no, but it comes there. up every now and then, Dave. People say, is oh, Megalodon still yeah, out there? Yeah, That's yeah. the residue. This is a greater Let's discussion. Let's start talking about Easter and Christmas, okay? Oh, Come okay. On. Anyways, so, so, hey, hey, hey. I got him riled up there. Sorry about it. Two things. Shark specialist David Schiffman said on Twitter a few days ago that the damage from that Megalodon is still alive uh, documentary. Oh, I shouldn't even call it a documentary. Uh, a yeah, fake documentary, he still gets asked if Megalodon is alive every time he does yeah. a public talk, as recent as this week. Um, so one. And two, when I flew down there, the host, Josh Gates, rolled his eyes when he was talking about that. And he was like, yeah, Discovery is still trying to uh, course correct after that. And we're hoping that this special for Expedition Unknown 
that I was on is a step in the right direction towards fixing that. Yeah, so that's, amen, Bobby. And that's, that's why I brought it up. I know it's, it's an ugly topic, but <laughs> hey, here on the Paleo Nerd Show, we like to nerd out. I like to nerd out. The inner kid in me, this animal versus that animal. The one big question I want to know, the big killer sperm whale, Leviathan melvilli? Yep. Could it take down a megalodon? What's your opinion on that, sir? Um, I think they'd be probably probably pretty evenly matched, to be honest. Uh, you think? If it's one-on-one, and here's the problem, many toothed whales cooperatively hunt. So if it was killer whale-like at all, then all of a sudden we're talking about a pod of leviathans. Oh, man. That's going to take out a megalodon pretty quickly. So it all hinges upon whether or not leviathan was a cooperative hunter like a gigantic killer whale or not. This leviathan melvilli, when you look at the teeth, they're massive. They are, they look like sperm whale teeth, but they're not straight up and down. They stick out at like a 45 degree angle all throughout the jaw. They look like- Upper and lower, yeah. Yeah, upper and lower. And this, it just is an, it is a meat eating machine. Is there any evidence of what they ate? So far, there are no confirmed tooth marks of these animals. And it's unclear how much in the way of a tooth mark they would leave with teeth that big and a bite force that hard. You might take a skull and just, you know, if, they, if it bites a baleen whale on the head, it might just crush the skull into crush it. hundreds of little pieces that you'd never recognize as leviathan uh, hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> we have lots and lots of uh, megalodon bite marks. There is one possible fossil from the Leak Creek Mine in North Carolina it's a rib, and it's possibly uh, got bite marks from a um, killer sperm whale. So, Bobby, when I was at the Santa Barbara Museum in that same trip when we met you, I had seen a skull of an animal that looked like Leviathan. Did we have them on the West Coast, uh, killer sperm whales? That skull has teeth that are only about three inches in diameter. So it's only about two thirds the size of Leviathan. Oh. We do have uh, Alvacetus oxymicturus, huh? which was originally described back in the 20s by Remington Kellogg. It was found uh, in a cliff exposure of the Monterey Formation, um, I think by a lighthouse keeper. And it's just the tip of the snout and maybe only about a quarter of the skull or so, but it's a foot long, or it's a, sorry, a whole meter long. And each tooth is about, maybe about a four or five inches in diameter almost. Wow. Um, and it's still smaller than Leviathan. Leviathan, I described the teeth as being the size of two liter soda bottles. <laughs> wow. So Leviathan, it didn't look like a sperm whale with the huge front spermaceti container did. in the front. Yeah. Or did they? Or was it more have a streamlined head? That's a, a really good question. We think that most of these um, early sperm whales had some sort of a rectangular forehead with the spermaceti organ because they all have what's called a supracranial basin, which is an extremely concave, almost stadium-shaped dish on the forehead. And it's a unique thing that we see only in the pygmy sperm whales and the modern giant sperm whale. And that's used for echolocation. Yes, it is a highly modified version of what you have in other tooth whales like the melon and all that. Yeah, it's radar. It's whale radar. Biosonar. 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 Here are some modern sperm whale clicks. 
I found a YouTube video by James Nestor on sperm whale sonar, and the clicks are the loudest of any animal on the planet at 236 decibels. And apparently can blow out your eardrum if you're nearby them. But check out his video, you'll see it in our links on our paleonerds.com website. Sperm whales clicking you inside and out. That is so awesome. I would like to ask about whales and their evolution. Ray and I were, were talking about this before we gave you a ring. I saw a skeleton in the L.A. County Museum of Natural History of an ambulocetus, mm -hmm. which looks like a wolf with four legs, and it has a tail, and it says this is a proto-whale. And then you think about a gray whale or a blue whale or a right whale, and the organisms are so drastically different, yet they are evolutionarily connected. The question is, how long does it take for those four legs to become flippers? Is it a transition that happens, let's say, on a Tuesday? Is it every 10 years you would see a difference? Is it every 100 years you would see a change? Is it every 1,000 years you would see a change? And then take a photo and then put that into an animation and watch that. You can go online and see uh, these animations of Ambulocetus turning into Bacillosaurus. So the, the answer to your question is about 10 million years or so, maybe 15 million years. So we go from the early Eocene period with Pachycetus and Ambulocetus. Pachycetus has, is slightly smaller. It's got longer legs, so it's probably a little more agile on land, though it has thickened leg bones, which is bone ballast to help it stay underwater. So we know it spent a lot of time underwater. Um, Ambulocetus, on the other hand, is uh, an ambush predator, and I liken it to a giant otter crocodile. Otter crocodile. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. So we go through several several of these early archaeocete families that each have at least a few different genera and species in them. And then the last group with hind legs that are functional are the protocetes, and they are the seal stage, so to speak of whale evolution. And protocetids are the first early whales to cross the North Atlantic. And we now have protocetids from the South Pacific, from uh, uh, right. Peru. And Wait, you mean cross the Atlantic as far as swimming an ocean? Yeah. 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 Found in South America days. Some of this is pretty revolutionary. Uh, okay, wait. Do uh, they have, do they have like uh, front flippers or front hands that kind of went to the side of their bodies and they had very powerful rear feet? They probably had, um, we only have a few good limbs of these, but based on some fossils from uh, Central Africa, their forefoot was kind of like a harbor seal-like flipper. And they had the similar thing on their uh, hind feet. What we don't really know, we don't really have a good transition between a protoceded and a basilosaurid yet. So we don't know how, how precisely we went from hind foot propelled swimming right. to tail propelled swimming. Yeah. I've always wondered about that. Why do the rear legs disappear completely and somehow it goes back to they weren't doing anything back there with those legs? Well, they probably undulated like a mermaid, which gave rise to a tail. Yeah, so we think some protocetids may have had a little itty-bitty incipient caudal fluke, like a maybe a little diamond shape or something like that. Off the tail. On the, on the tip of the tail. And by the time we get to basilosaurids, the hind legs are there, but they look kind of like the, the vestigial, creepy <laughs> chest arms of the queen alien from Aliens. 
Uh, they're not doing a whole lot. We think they were functioning possibly as mating claspers, like a boa constrictor uh, with its vestigial legs. Uh, and that's because they're not completely vestigial structures in Basilosaurus. They've got the femur, the thigh bone, has really well-developed muscle attachments. And most importantly, it has a kneecap. Kneecaps are sesamoid bones and only form with lots of stress and strain upon that limb. So you cannot form a kneecap if you're not using your legs for anything. And really the only thing we can think of that a basilosaurid leg would be used for would be gripping the mate. And even today, whales and dolphins still have a vestigial pelvis, but the only function that serves is to anchor in muscles that pull the penis back into the body cavity and anchor the uh, walls of the vagina. So the hind limbs today in modern cetaceans are entirely used for reproduction, and there's not really any reason to think that was different for the first whales with vestigial legs. Are you lacking a transitional animal in whale evolution? There's a, a couple of gaps I'd like to see better fossils for, and one of them is the transition from protocetids with hind limb dominated or hind limb powered swimming to basilosaurid whales that are fully marine with tail powered swimming. We also don't have many protocetid tails in general, so it's possible that things like Georgicetus from the state of Georgia, we don't have <laughs> the tail or the legs of it, but we know that the pelvis is no longer connected by anything other than cartilage to the sacrum, and it's only got one sacral vertebra left instead of four, the primitive number for cetaceans. So that, that means that it has a tail, but the tail wasn't found in the fossil record. Yeah, and it's possible that something like Georgicetus, if we found a full tail, you might see it's a really, really large tail that's longer than in other protocetids, and it may have rectangular vertebrae at the end, which are shallow and thin because they're in the tail fluke when the tail fluke flattens out. We see that in a modern whale. We see that in basilosaurids, which is why we know that they had tail flukes like a modern dolphin or baleen whale. That's really cool, Bobby. Do you actually get to go out in the field, go hunting for maybe the missing bits of a Georgia cetus? Are you on the hunt? I've not done any field work in rocks of the right age, though I have recently gotten an invitation to go to a quarry that has not been open to paleontologists in about 10 years, where you can find basilosaurid fossils and fossils from the very, very, very late Eocene, just before, or actually at the same time that the earliest baleen whales and dolphins evolved. We can find basilosaurid whales there. Um, and I have a student working on a, a Dorodon-like fossil Gordon's a basilosaur from Egypt. I have a student working on a fossil from there right now this semester. So I can look for some that are unlikely to tell me anything about that transition. But that's my only opportunity to look for. Take me on a real simple journey here. So a four-legged whale, which we'll just call Ambulocetus, which means walking whale, right. they existed in the Eocene? Early Eocene of Pakistan. Okay, so 55 million years ago. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then when is the first whale without any limbs? I mean, that is whale-like, that doesn't have any vestigial limbs with a beautiful fluky tail. When would you find that in the world's oceans? What age or epoch? Do you mean no external hind legs? Yes. Uh, so that's the wild thing. We actually are very certain that the earliest baleen whales still had external hind legs. Okay, so I'm in a boat way back then. What are you talking? You're talking about the Oligocene? We're talking about the Miocene? So basilosaurids are the common ancestor of baleen whales and echolocating dolphins. And they still had the, the creepy little uh, vestigial hind legs that stuck out of the body wall. 
early baleen whales that evolved uh, at the late Eocene and the early Oligocene still had them because they have a pelvis that's the same size as Basilosaurus. However, some of those early whales looked a lot like modern baleen whales. Uh, the earliest things that would look that, that if you took some random Joe off the street and, and asked them, what is that weird thing? They'd be like, that's a whale or that's a dolphin, probably talking the early Oligocene, so about 30 to 34 million. So what, when is the split between, and I know a lot of the whale paleontologists debate this and argue about this, but the split between the baleens and the toothed whales, where does that happen? When? No later than about 36 million years ago in the late Eocene. Oh. So Yonacetus dentocrinatus, which is a huge toothed baleen whale that my PhD advisor collected from Seymour Island in Antarctica. It's bigger than Basilosaurus. Its skulls like the size of a bathtub. It's got these incredible teeth. That fossil is about 35 million years old. And there are fossil fossils of Mystacodon, the toothed baleen whale, from the rocks of the same age in Peru. We do not have any dolphins that are earlier than about 33 million years uh, years old. So wait, when you say toothed baleen whale, that means it has a transitional teeth with strainers in it? So uh, one, of the, yeah. one of my favorite fossils I've published on is called Coronadon, the crown toothed whale. And that is from slightly not younger. to be confused with a mexican beer or a virus yes yes <laughs> uh i actually joked about asking corona to sponsor us or something which i love corona beer so i was a little predisposed to the name corona don corona don has uh large basilosaurus like teeth and the skull looks a lot like a basilosaurid the teeth overlap like shingles but if you look end on they actually have little gaps in between the teeth that water could flow through so we think that the it could use its dentition to filter feed for fish and maybe even krill, but without having any baleen. Okay. Granulated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ray and I were looking at the teeth of the crab eater seal or the krill eater seal out of Antarctica. And when you look at the dentition, it is almost like a cur it's curly on the sides. And there's plenty of room for seawater to go in and out. So they are effectively straining krill using teeth. There's no baleen. Absolutely. And um, is that a transitional mammal going from dentition to baleen, which is made of keratin, right? There's no evidence that these Antarctic seals are evolving anything with their gums that could evolve into baleen. I'm going to come back to something about that real quick, but I'd like to mention briefly also that the leopard seal, while being most famous in animated penguin musicals like Happy <laughs> is famous for ripping penguin heads off. It only does that about three months out of the year. The other nine months out of the year, they go way uh, further north, uh, away from Antarctica, and feed on krill. So if you find leopard seals outside Antarctic waters, and you look at their gut, their gut is usually filled with thousands and thousands of krill. Now, modern huh. marine mammals that, are, that could be evolving something like baleen is a gingival tissue. It originates from the gums and the palate. If you look at the doll's porpoise, Ostenoides doli, it has these really weird teeth that look like little spatulas, but unique to them and not present in any other porpoises or dolphins are little hardened bits of gums that stick up in between the teeth and probably serve to uh, grip prey kind of like the bottom of a hiking boot. So if you're gripping right. a slippery prey, you might evolve little pointy bits of your gums that are hardened and cornified to help the teeth out. And that could be co-opted as a straining device later. So that's a possibility for the evolution of baleen.
Well, it's interesting. We have dolls porpoise up here in Alaska. Yeah, they're yep. black and white, right? Yeah, yep. they're black and white and super fast. Yeah, super yep. fast. One of my favorite pictures yeah. ever taken by a wildlife photographer is this doll's porpoise that a killer whale is sending to the moon. Oh, it's sad. Is there a transitional fossil from toothed whale to baleen whale, or is it magic? There are many, and yeah. uh, there are as many opinions on how <laughs> the baleen thinking. evolved as yeah. there are possible transitional fossils. So there's this thing called- It's almost a blood feud. You guys get all riled up about this, but it's your floor. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying there are transitional fossils, but you can't come to an agreement on it? Uh. I mean, I know what happened. <laughs> uh, there, there are other people who also know what happened, and and our stories don't necessarily line up. And that's partly <laughs> because baleen doesn't fossilize, so you have to rely on other sources of information. There's this uh, fossil collected by uh, somebody who Ray and I are both big fans of, Doug Emlong, who collected all sorts of incredible fossils on the West Coast. Yes, he collected this thing, Adiacetus, and there's several yeah. species of it, and they all have uh, a flat palate with spaced out teeth that are a couple inches separated. And then on the palate are these little grooves for blood vessels. My colleagues at San Diego State and uh, Natural History Museum, they published a paper in 2008 that has proved to be, I think, really influential. Others will say highly controversial, where they predicted uh, or reconstructed Adiacetus as having teeth and baleen at the same time. So you go from a state where baleen whales had teeth only like coronadon to teeth and baleen and then the teeth get smaller and smaller and smaller and more spaced apart and then baleen only during my phd i filled in the gap between tooth and baleen and baleen only by finding evidence of baleen whales that very likely had baleen across much of the uh, upper jaw and then a few weird little buck teeth in the front that were not used in feeding at all those are called the eomysticeted baleen whales, and we have some evidence of peg-like teeth in the front, but probably reliant upon baleen. So eomysticeteds, in my opinion, show the transition from a functional to a functionless dentition. And modern baleen whales, of course, still have teeth as embryos. They develop the teeth and then resorb them all and then form the baleen. And depending upon which baleen whale species you look at, sometimes the baleen forms after the teeth, and in some species they form at the same time. So there is some sort of embryological precursor to having a tooth plus baleen stage in baleen whale evolution. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask a silly question. The gray and humpbacks in Alaska that do the bubble, circle bubble feeding, and then they come up in the air and they're, they're eating shrimp. Because uh, there really isn't huge, is it krill or shrimp up in southeast Alaska? Well, they're krill or andor small schooling fish, maybe baby salmon. Right. They don't have Herring. baleen. They don't have baleen. They have just huge, large mouths. Correct. No, they've got baleen. They got baleen, dude. Well, they do. Not like a oh, right yeah. whale, though, right? It's short baleen. <laughs> short, short baleen. That... And part of that's because a, a humpback and a, a humpback's got a or or a fin or a blue has a flat snout, whereas a right whale or a, a bowhead, it's got an arched snout, and so it's a big smile. It's 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 all based upon this the the manner in which they feed. Now we mentioned controversy. 
So, <laughs> and it's most of the controversy is revolved around these 80 acetas. And some colleagues of mine in Australia uh, were working on a fossil that is unnamed, but it's got a nickname, Alfred. And Alfred <laughs> uh, has teeth. The palate is not very well preserved, but they show that this animal's got really weird tooth wear. So the, the teeth are worn above the base of the crown, and most of the wear is these scratches that go front to back, so along the direction of the tongue. And so they propose that rather than baleen, maybe this whale had thickened gums. And thickened gums need a blood supply, just like baleen does, and that might explain why these tooth baleen whales have enlarged uh, uh, holes in the palate for arteries. Problem is, it's one specimen, and the palate's not very well preserved. But that's what you're kind of referring to with the doll porpoise, that, that gum between them? Yeah, yeah, or maybe that the thickened gums are an adaptation for suction feeding. Huh. So using the mouth to suck in sediment that's laden with little tasty critters, um, kind of like what a gray whale does, uh, or a walrus for that matter. They actually compare, make direct comparisons with walrus feeding. Oh, um, our beloved walruses, yeah. Uh, so so there's there's been a lot of back and forth. Uh, my friends in Australia published a paper that said baleen whales didn't use their teeth for filter feeding within a few months of our coronadon paper coming out. And they pointed out that coronadon and some other toothed baleen whales have sharp teeth and that sharp teeth are better for cutting meat. Well, that's maybe not entirely fair because we never said that coronadon was a strict dental filter feeder. We said it probably ate large prey and very small prey, a lot like how a leopard seal does. Okay, I've got a weird question here. You just got me thinking here. So shark teeth are made for cutting meat. They're like razor blades on their edge and they're serrated. All right, but we'll look at a dog, look at a wolf, look at a lion. Those are round canines with big flat molars in the back for chewing and crushing bone. Aren't they both made for meat? So uh, you hit on another topic there, which is heterodonty. So different teeth in different parts of the mouth. Mammals, yeah. Canines are usually, in, in, in all meat-eating mammals, whether you're feeding on fish or chasing down gazelles, your canine, the teeth in the front of your mouth are usually cone-shaped. It's no different in, in early whales. Tooth baleen whales have cone-shaped teeth in the front of the mouth. That's a reason why dolphins have cone-shaped teeth throughout the jaw. But the, we're really talking about the molars. And the molars have these big V-shaped notches between the cusps, and they're quite sharp. And if you look at the molars of a cat, or even actually a dog, they have what's called the carnassial notch, which is still a meat-slicing tooth. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I forget the contraption they use a, at a butcher shop, but it basically works by having a kind of like, like scissors. If you, if you just think of two scissors going in yeah. opposite directions, that diamond you know, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as it gets smaller, the force applied to those sharp cutting edges increases, um, therefore efficiently cutting through uh, muscle tissue. So my friends in Australia argued that baleen whales probably weren't filter feeding with their teeth. And there's going to be a rebuttal to that. We've been working on it slowly. So there's, there's, there's a, a bit of a, a polite blood feud about early Controversy. Baleen whales. They're still your friends, though. I like it. They're still our friends. So why do sharks not have cone-shaped teeth? Is it because the dentition are kind of from a fish lineage and have nothing to do with a land-based animal? I think you're thinking too much of great whites right now, but if you look at a, a sand tiger, they've yeah. got cone-shaped teeth. You're right. Yeah, and Mako. Yeah, I, I got yeah. it. I got it. Okay, well, they're so all, 
kind of thin too, but they also produce massive amounts. They lose a tooth and they get a tooth like the next week. It's there. Boom. So, so. so think about this. Makos and sand tigers have what's called a, uh, I think a clutching dentition. So you have all these little pincers, they grab the fish and then it swallows it. But when you have big triangular teeth that are serrated, that's generally for feeding on uh, things that are bigger than your head. So <laughs> great whites will, you know, they'll take down a seal I've looked at ice cream that way. Yeah, yeah. They can't they can't swallow the seal in one bite, so they yeah. shake it to pieces. They shake it, but basically a shark doesn't chew either. It doesn't it just bites and swallows. Right. right. And modern dolphins don't don't chew either. Yeah, just gulp and but oh, um, I didn't which know. ironically is why killer whales shake their prey to death also. They don't they can't chew? they can't chew. Because all they got are those cones. So rip, 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 rip. Ooh, and there's a couple wow. of, there's a couple of pinnipeds wow. that do that too and they occasionally eat things like birds or smaller pinnipeds huh you mean pinniped seals and sea lions seals and sea lions hey bobby what's the closest relative on land to whales the hippo what yes <laughs> just double checking because i did my big family tree and um, wait, when did they split off? So that would be the Paleocene? No, that's way back when, yeah, when the Ambulocetus is splitting off so from the, the Eocene. Hippo. Probably, yeah, the Eocene. probably in the Paleocene. Although Paleocene. There, there are some... I was right, Ray. I was right. Yeah, good job, man. It, it could even be earlier. Maybe right? earlier. There are many, many deep divergences within placental mammals that we have no fossil evidence of, but molecular divergence dates going three to five or even more million years back before the Cretaceous paleogene extinction. Cool. You, your wife is a paleontologist as well. Yes. Right? Sarah is collections manager. Do you guys work? You guys work together on papers. Uh, are you running that museum now? What's how? What's your what's your day to day work like? Um, we do commute together. We do work together. Uh, usually we work together well. Um, occasionally we'll have uh, disputes about how to do something. And we're both degreed now, so uh, we both have a certain amount of weight behind each of our opinions. Oh. We work with Scott Persons, who is our curator. The position is about to be formalized, but I will be the first Mace Brown Research Fellow at the museum. So right now, I'm sort of a postdoctoral student in the summers, or postdoctoral research fellow in the summers, and adjunct lecturer during the school year. And just, just say the name of the museum. If It is called the... Mace Brown Museum of Natural History. Got it. So Got it. as a research fellow, is that an endowed position? Will you be able to work and research whatever the hell you want now? It's not endowed yet, but essentially my major job here and my funding is to study the early fossils of whales and dolphins from the Charleston embayment that are between about 23 and 30 million years old, giving a unique window into the early diversification of uh, tooth whales and baleen whales. So Bobby, if you could get in the old time machine and go only into the past, when in the past would you go to and what would you want to see? Uh, the answer is pretty simple and it's going to go back to a lot of the stuff I talked about earlier. The place I care about the most and the time I care about the most is the last five or six million years before the Ice Age off the West Coast. I, from a young age, I was obsessed with tide pools for completely different reasons, not paleontologically. Uh, I love going out to the tide pools, seeing all the neat little critters, and reading more about the deep time background to the 
kelp forests, uh, tide pools, all these incredible things I'm used to seeing as a naturalist on the West Coast. Now, as a paleontologist, I'm getting the big picture. And so what I would like to do is go back and sort of see what the, you know, what kelp forests look like five million years ago off the West Coast. There'd probably be a lot of similar things you would see today, probably um, the California sheep's head. Garibaldi. Garibaldi's exactly, which by the way is the world's largest clownfish species. Well, not really clownfish, but member of that family. So that's another- And Desmos. Desmophilia, the love of Desmosthelians. Desmos. De yeah, Desmo the latest Desmos were about eight or nine million years ago. Hmm. So some of the some of the actors would be a little weird and freaky compared to what you'd see out there today. I'd love to go for a scuba dive. Well, maybe maybe not a scuba dive. Maybe in a submarine, given that Megalodon's <laughs> still around. That's that's where I would go. And gigantic sea cows and uh, yeah, giant killer weird... walruses. The killer walruses with four tusks, Gomphotaria, and then there's that weird dolphin with the lower jaw probe thing. Semi-rostrum. Semi-rostrum, thank you. And uh, I, I'm seeing on the back of your picture there, smiling on ichthys as well. Ocarincus rastrosus. Yeah, Ocarincus yeah, Okay, I'm going to ask my question, and then we'll wrap it up, guys, all right? And I'm going to pretend like I'm not reading this. Science is under attack more than ever because of social media, and the internet has the ability to spread opinions, lies, and propaganda as truths, or even scientific fact, and users rarely take the extra step to verify what they're reading and reposting. So what can you do as an educator and a paleontologist to help promote the idea that facts are real and opinions, and opinions are just that, somebody's point of view? The most important thing I think is effectively communicating science and showing how it works. And not just science as a series of facts, but how we actually find these out. So, so an example is that horrible headline from about a week or two ago about only 6% of people who said to have died from COVID-19 have that as the only thing on their death certificate. All these other people, you know, 90% or whatever, had other comorbidities and therefore, oh, they just died of diabetes. Well, the problem is like that headline was, ex was grossly irresponsible. And didn't get into the fact that, you know, why people have comorbidities. It's like, well, they didn't die from diabetes. They had diabetes and then COVID killed them. If it wasn't for that, they'd still be around. So that, that's sort of a, a criminal example of why it's really important to discuss science as a process and a way of refining information and refining and developing and testing hypotheses. And I try and do that a fair amount in my own teaching. I try and do that on my blog, talk about the, you know, it's not always nice to look up under the carpet where everybody's been sweeping the crumbs, but uh, it's important to do that so that the public knows we're not completely full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, that's yeah, a great answer. Let's see the process. Thank you, Bobby. It's been really so cool having you here. Join us, uh, join us at Paleo Nerds. Uh, when I met you all those years ago, man, you were you're a fellow artist too, and uh, I know you're drawing your own creatures, so I can relate to you in many. Where levels. can I see your work, Bobby? Um, so far, I don't have an official website, but I do have a Facebook page. 
It's just Bosnecker natural history illustration. Awesome. All right, I'll check. Yeah, so out. when Bobby publishes a new thing, he's doing the uh, doing a, his own artwork. But thank you for all uh, the knowledge you've shared over the years, and uh, give my best to Sarah. And I want to hang out with you sometime, and uh, hope that Dave and I get to come out and visit your museum. That would be a blast. Um, we'll put our heads together and figure something out after all this blows over. All right. Yeah. And call me when you find that fossilized baleen. There is actual fossil baleen out there already. Oh, but it's, but it's not attached to a jaw? <laughs> well, it's from it's from whales that are only about five or six million years old. So it doesn't tell right. us much about the early evolution. Right. But we right, do right. have extensive fossil baleen from the Parisma Formation, for example, Monterey Formation of California also, but most importantly, the piece formation of Peru, where there's skulls that are complete with every single plate of baleen still preserved. Wow. Three-dimensionally. Wow. And microscopically. Cool stuff. Well, I'm going to take this bit and put it <laughs> earlier in the bit. Hey, Bobby, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. And, uh, what a great uh, podcast. Thanks. Thanks a million for inviting me, guys. True pleasure, man. See ya. See you, man. Bye. Bye. See you, Bobby. Thanks. Well, that was amazing about whales. You know, I've always wanted to know about that transition from a walking wolf-like, what did you, what'd you call it? Uh, the wolf? crocodile otters or otter crocodiles, whatever. Yeah, otter, yeah, like a wolf. <laughs> Crocodile head stuck in the body of a wolf. But yeah, you kept driving away at uh, how long does it take for it suddenly? It is an amazing transformation to happen. You know, walking creatures that look pretty much like a dog that are become whales. It uh, happens over millions of years. But, you know, in terms of geologic time, sometimes it just seems just poof, it happens so quick. That also applies to any other organism that, that evolves, right? Uh, we, right. we were rat-like creatures, now we're primates. The point I'm making is, is that with the Darwin finches, he was able to not see evolution taking place, but he could see the same finch with one has a short beak and one has a long beak, okay? So he could infer, but what I wanna know is, and I still really don't have it answered, is it a million years? Is it a hundred years? Is it, if you're gonna do a, an animation, let's say, of, of these organisms, a stop action animation, right? When are you gonna start seeing physical change you go oh my god look it grew a trunk that thing that that had no trunk now has a longer trunk and it's a longer trunk oh my god it's huge long proboscis trunk and now we can call it an elephant well i think what we're learning here there are different rates of evolution you know things like a creature like the ratfish has changed hardly a bit in 300 million yeah, years unchanged and then we see, you know, at the at every time there's a major extinction, a planetary extinction, there's these empty niches and animals seem to fill it pretty rapidly. So, yeah, it's mind blowing stuff, man. I'm learning as we go along. And, uh, you know, I thought I knew a lot. But, uh, you know, the more you <laughs> find out, the less you realize, you know. So, well, that's what I love about science. You know, it never answers a question. It only creates 10 more. Right, and this is the adventures of a ventriloquist and an artist in their journey through time and life, man. And Bobby's episode concludes our first season of 16 episodes, so... Uh, what? What? It's over? Yeah. Oh, no, oh. it's not over, dude. Dude, not I over. say let's go for another season. That's 16 episodes. What an adventure it's been! Yeah, it's been great. It has been very cool. We have talked to some really cool people. So we're going to do this again, right, Dave? Yeah, yeah, because there's some awesome people out there that I want to talk to, too. I mean, there's the whole 
you know, Colorado, Wyoming paleontological world. Those guys are out there digging up Triceratops. And we never talked to a Triceratops expert. You know, Amy Atwater knew about T-Rexes, but she wasn't really the T-Rex expert. Right, right. So we can track down some T-Rex experts. And there still are some ongoing controversies, as you would say, out there, and we can uh, get into some of those. You know, is it yeah, uh, let's do juvenile T Rex or a Nano Tyrannus, that kind of thing? We can nerd out, go deeper and deeper, man. If you're up for it, <laughs> I'm up for it totally. All right, let's do this thing. On we go. The question is, Ray. Yes. Are you a paleo nerd? Without a doubt, sir. I was born a paleo nerd, and I shall always be a paleo nerd, David. And yourself, sir? I am such a paleo nerd. It's disgusting. It's getting worse, isn't it? It is, it is. It's a terminal disease. Okay, see you next time. See you at the uh, first episode of next season. Oh, man, can't wait for it. I'll see you then, Dave. All right, later. Peace out, dude. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleonerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo